Thank you guys for being with us this morning. This uh, particular week, every year as we transition back to the school year, it just seems like so many Washingtonians suddenly have the realization that they're back and they're about to be back in the school year. And so there's this huge drive to get somewhere and go camping one more time. Got to get to the beach one more time. And I, and I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a way to get to the beach this week too. So um, thank you for being here this morning. I want to I start this morning with the topic of morality because morality is a function of belief. If you're, uh, for example, if you're a secular humanist, then you believe that morals simply evolved with man and that morals somehow were advantageous to forming societies and having relationships. Of course, uh, no secular humanists want to talk about the great utopian uh, vision that we're living in today. Um, Yeah, right, (laughs) utopia, whereby all all morality is purely subjective to the individual now. And doesn't it work really well as a society when everybody gets to choose what is right and wrong for themselves? It's such a great plan. I love it. It works so well. Um, so it, it's, it's funny. I, I'm just thinking about this. It's ironic because it's the left that uh, generally insists on our conformity and adherence to their morality, even though they want to play the game that there's no such thing as morality. But that's a whole other story. Um, we, we've, As a culture, we've kind of overthrown and thrown off the restraints of Judeo-Christian morality uh, as a culture. And, and, uh, and then in the process, we've become legalists about so many things. Isn't that funny? You look at our culture, like we're going to throw off the restraint of morality, especially when it comes to sexual ethics. And then they insist that you adhere to their morality. It's insane to me. And the dirty little secret is that we can't we can't, as a, as a population, as human beings, we can't seem to grasp that God has made us for morality, and we can't do without it. We can't just jettison it. When we try to jettison God's morality, man just creates new systems of morality, not, not for human flourishing, but ones that erode and destroy society and destroy cultures. So rather than man's best attempt at a moral code, We need God's moral standard and praise God that it's laid down for us here plainly in the text in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I love what the late Dr. Chuck Missler said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of our King, and it's the platform of the Prince of Peace. And it is law. It's the law. It goes vastly beyond the law of Moses. It's the Ten Commandments amplified and expanded. It raises the law to the nth degree. As the law of Christ's kingdom, it is the highest ethical teaching in the Bible. It will be the law of this world during the millennial reign, and it will find its full fruition. Christ will reign on the earth in person. He will enforce every word. The Sermon on the Mount will finally prevail when he whose right it is to rule shall come. And to that I say a hearty amen. The ethics presented in Jesus' sermon are not an addition to the Old Testament law, as some have erroneously believed. The ethics laid down by Jesus in this sermon go exceedingly beyond the morality uh, of of what is set down in the Torah or the Old Testament. In fact, the, the ethics here go far and exceedingly beyond what we're capable of as fallen human beings. And this is why we, we really need to stop and be really clear on the intent of Jesus in giving this to us. It was not, it is not a manifesto on how societies ought to live together and treat each other. It's not that at all. If that were its purpose, if that were its role, it would only serve to frustrate us because we can never achieve what the Lord has delineated in these passages, not in the flesh. We can't possibly live like this. No, instead, what Jesus is doing here is he's articulating the ethics of the kingdom of God, which will only be fully realized in glory in the coming kingdom. We will be glorified and we'll be able to keep these ethics. 
These are King Jesus's kingdom ethics for his kingdom citizens. And he's giving them to us now, even though he knows we cannot keep them perfectly because he's preparing us for the life to come in the kingdom. Practice makes perfect. You hear that growing up? Do you, you ever have a parent? You, you decided for whatever reason, I want to take violin lessons, right? And then, and then you heard that, well, practice makes perfect. Got to practice your violin, practice your viola. Oh, man, not, no, that's not autobiographical. I, I never played the viola. Um, but that's the reality here. This is what's happening. Jesus is saying, practice these now as much as you are able to do in the power of the Spirit, because this is the reality that's coming to us. Ultimately, this life, this body of flesh, the law, the ethics of God's Word, um, it's all going to be magnified, and, and, and we're going to be in glory with Him. And and praise God for the realization of our weakness and inability right now, because that just drives us back to the foot of the cross again and again and again. And the only way that we can fulfill the law of God is actually to just accept the fact uh, that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law of God, and we put our faith in Him, in the one who can live out all these realities. And, and with that in mind, we're going to just jump right back into the text of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48. And we pick up the text here. You've heard it said, this is Jesus speaking. You've heard it said that it was, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whether insults, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, raka, whoever says that's going to be liable to the hell of fire. So if, if that's you, Jesus says, and you're in the process of offering your gift at the altar, you're in the process of worshiping God, and there you remember that there's some, something disjointed. You, your brother has something against you. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with those who accuse you while you're still going to court. Lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the guard and you'd be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you pay the last penny. Now, I love what Jesus is doing here. He starts out, the, the phrase that started here in verse 21, you've heard it said, but I say. That's, that's an authoritative statement. Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, I know what the Old Testament says. I know what Moses gave you, what God gave to Moses and Moses gave to you. But I'm telling you, here's the reality. Here's the, here's the, the actual revelation of this ethic that I want you to keep. Okay, um, and so Jesus is clearly asserting that his authority to say these things surpasses that of the Jewish law. And here's Jesus essentially calling people to something beyond the law, which was never given in the hope that sinful humanity could somehow keep it. It was given expressly to show us that we can't. And therefore, for us to lean into the mercy and grace of God, right? So here Jesus is telling us that anger is murder. And, and, and I have to just qualify that. It's not all anger. I mean, God is angry at times, and that's not a sin. His anger is perfectly righteous. There's a righteous indignation that we can have. But when we just get angry for anger's sake, see, anger has to find its, its ultimate end point. You can't stay angry indefinitely. How many of you have tried to do that before? Say, so I'm just going to hold this grudge because it's my, it's my, pet, it's my, it's my precious grudge right? Yeah, I've done that too, right? And so you, you're just not made to do that. God, God doesn't want us to hold on to those things. We don't, we don't stay angry indefinitely. And, and we all know people who have, who've tried, who've held grudges for decades until it just consumed them. And so instead, what we can do is we can trust that when we're wronged and, and, we, and we are angry about it, rightly, righteously angry about it, we have a just God who sees that all things will be set to rights. He's going to take care of that. He's going to take care of it. Um, and then, and then we, we see here in the text, calling people fools will land you in hellfire. Um, this points us 
this section points us to the duplicity in our own souls, right? When we're wronged, we want those who've done us wrong to pay for it. And when we wrong others, we plead for mercy. So making these kinds of determinations and judgments about people in the heat of the moment is a very dangerous thing to do. As born-again Christians, we ought to be making things right with those around us. We're told that we need to be being reconciled to our brothers and sisters, and those are specific individuals, not everybody all the time. We're having a big kumbaya moment as the church. No, it's like individual relationships that, that are broken or hurting or have, have, there's a schism there, something happened. We need to be intentional about trying to make those things right. And so as much as is possible for you, be at peace with all men, Scripture tells us. But what's in view here is forgiveness and restoration and, and, and relationship. And, and don't presume, Jesus would say, don't presume to draw near to worship the Lord when you have unresolved conflict and issues with the people in your lives. That's not how it works. I'm just going to set that aside. I'm still angry at you, but I'm going to go worship Jesus and be holy. Jesus will spank your bottom. I know, like I have, I have come to church being angry at somebody and could not engage in worship. My heart could not engage until I put that down and said, Lord, forgive me for holding on to that. This is, this is the reality. These are the kingdom ethics, right? He knows our hearts. He knows whether we come in genuine contrition or not. In verse 27, Jesus said, you've heard it said, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus raises the bar again. You've heard it said, but I say to you, lust is as adultery in God's eyes. That should give us pause. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? And that goes for adult eyes too. Be careful what you see. All this And all this talking about ripping your eyes out and cutting your hand off, that's pretty severe. But that's actually precisely the point. This is... This sin, sin is severe. God is saying sin is severe. Um, this is not a call to mutilate yourself. It's, it's a call to realize the severity of sin, especially when it comes to sexual sins and lust. When Jesus says it's better for you to tear your eye out, he's warning us that we need to take serious measures to bring our sin under control in the power of the Spirit. For most people, your right eye is your dominant eye. For most people. And so to, to, to lose your right eye would impair your vision at a pretty serious level. Uh, your right hand is, is, in that culture, was how you ate and greeted other people and did business in that culture. To lose your right hand would leave you ostracized societally. And so Jesus said those scenarios are better <laughs> when compared to entertaining sin and keeping those, your hand and your eye. To lose them would be better than to keep them and continue in sin. So Jesus is drawing a contrast between how important righteousness is for eternity in contrast to how destructive sin is in this life. It's more important that we focus on the righteousness for eternity. And so he continues, verse 31, it was also said, <coughs> whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is fun because this is our culture. And, and this is, it's really common in the church, right? The reason for this is because now, according to what Jesus just said, She's been sexually active, but she's no longer in a marriage covenant. God's exclusive context for sex is the intimate bond of covenant with one's own spouse of the opposite gender, and there are only two genders. I, I, I can't believe we're at a place where I have to say those things in church, okay? 
just to be clear, when that covenant context is removed by breaking it via divorce, you're no longer married, but you have been sexually active, and therefore it's as if she has committed adultery because she was with a man who is no longer her husband and not because of his death. You following that? It's, it, it is likely that that sounds really harsh to some of our ears this morning. But understand that this is God speaking directly and plainly about how he sees it. Not how we see it, not how our cultures soften the blow of these things, how God sees this reality. You're not getting Pastor Mike's interpretation. You're getting Jesus's words on the matter. And then there's this, this tag in verse 32, whoever marries her, the woman who is divorced, commits adultery. Because this underscores how God sees the issue of covenant. God gave us covenant as a lifetime agreement. Not something we could toss aside, not something we can throw away. Some, someone will say, oh, but Pastor Mike, Jesus forgives. It isn't that bad. Let me just tell you, I had someone ask me last year um, what I thought were the top three things that happened to our country since World War II that have led to the decline and now the death throes of Western civilization. And my number one answer was no contest divorce. Number one. To, to tell our culture that you don't have to work at staying married. If things get hard, you can just leave and, and break the marriage apart and break the family apart and all those things. I think that's the number one contributing factor to where we are today. Now, there have been others, but I think that's number one. And the undermining and the destruction of Christian marriage necessarily resulted in the implosion of our culture. And again, there are other factors, but I think this is the one that really weakened the support structures of our nation. Broken marriages impact the next generation of kids for whom now it's normalized. And, and then that cycle continues and it grows until tossing aside one's wedding vows before God is a small matter to most people in our culture today. It's not a big deal. Now, I won't throw all the stats at you about broken homes, but suffice it to say, God's design for marriage and the home cannot be improved upon. And what we're seeing at this very hour is a downward spiral that you know, is articulated for us in Romans chapter 1. It began with the erosion of the marriage covenant, and, it, and it's caused the destruction of the home in our culture. And, and I hope that um, if, if this describes you in any way, in your past, you've repented, you're right with the Lord, um, God forgives us. There's healing in that. And so don't hear me say like, oh, you're going to hell. No, 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 no. But I'm just, I'm saying this is when God gives us his ethic and then we as sinful humanity don't keep it for whatever reason, these are the results. This is what happens. And so um, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I don't, I don't want to, I didn't want to lead with that. Okay. I want to lead with, hey, 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 divorce isn't such, such a bad thing. I didn't, I didn't you know, because we're so prone to presume upon God's grace and excuse ourselves. So you need to hear the hard things so, so that you could hear that, that God, God, there's grace for us in this, even in this. So uh, verse 33, again, you've, you've heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform all that you've sworn to the Lord. But I say to you, Jesus said, don't even take an oath at all, um, either by heaven, because that's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool. Or don't swear by Jerusalem, for it's just it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath on your own head, for you can't make one hair white or black. And I know, man, when did this thing get white? I mean, crazy. Look in the mirror, and I'm like, what? You can't, you can't, you can't do anything about getting old. But Jesus says, let what you so let what you say simply be yes or no. Just let it be yes or no. Anything more comes from comes from evil. Some translations say it comes from the evil one. But the, the point that Jesus is making, just, just, just speak plainly. Don't, don't swear by heaven, I'm, I will do this great thing, and never do it. Don't, don't do that. This is, this is really a clarion call to know yourself. Know yourself. That means having a realistic view of who you are and what you really are in the grander scheme of the cosmos. <laughs> Taking oaths, by the way, is not a sin. Like if you, if you have to take an oath, you're a naturalized U.S. citizen and you take an oath to uphold the Constitution, you're not sinning by taking an oath. 
But people sometimes do make great claims about what they will and will not do in this life, and that's arrogant. That's what God is saying. It's arrogance. No one actually follows through, not fully. So it amounts to bragging or boasting, and is uh, and as finite contingent creatures, we just don't have any place to boast or brag about what we do or don't do. And so then Jesus mentions this idea of swearing by something as if tagging on the phrase, I swear by God's temple, is any less presumptuous. <laughs> it's actually more presumptuous. Um, presumption is, in, I don't know if you know this, presumption is a sin according to God. 1 Samuel 15, 23 um, Samuel is speaking to King Saul, and he says, Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. It's a big deal to God when we're presumptuous. So you and I don't have the ability to change the future, and since we don't know the future, we ought not boast or swear upon the future. Just say, yeah, I'll do that, or no, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you. And just let that be enough. Just, just follow through accordingly. Verse 38. <clears throat> you've, heard it, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this is a continuation of the same theme. The question comes up in this context. Is it okay, uh, is self-defense okay for Christians? And I believe the answer is yes, it is. And not only self-defense, but the purposeful defense of others around us. That topic, we're not going to go deep dive on this. If you want to do that, coffee this week, reach out to me. You pay, I'll pray, and I'll explain it all for you. Um, but the, 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 real, the reality is this relates to Romans chapter 13, and it relates to our U.S. Constitution, which we have for just a few more minutes. And, and the government of the United States of America has been, until recently, uh, a constitutional republic whereby the inalienable rights of the citizens were and still are supposed to be the primary guardianship of those impositions of governance. So many Christians fundamentally misunderstand Romans 13 and its specific application to a form of government like the one that we have. So it, it, what I'm saying is that we, all, we the people, are the government, right? But, by, but the time, time just doesn't allow me to delve deep into this. So again, if you want more, let's, let, you know, let's get together, reach out to me. I'd be happy to sit down and talk about Romans 13 with you. Um, but, you know, we, we all are wronged in our culture. Um, I was thinking this week about um, my sophomore year of college. I had a full scholarship at uh, Clayton State in Atlanta. And then I'm, I was dating a girl, and she had a full scholarship at Troy State in Troy, Alabama, which was three and a half hours away. And, and I'd gone to visit her several times that freshman year, and I hated the drive. So what did I do? I transferred to Troy State. I gave up my scholarship and went to Troy State, which was a stupid thing to do. So dumb. But... My wife is giggling. <laughs> She's like, yes, it was. Um, I know, I was girl crazy. Um, so uh, so at Troy State, so one of the things that happened to me at Troy State was I had a roommate who was just a, a mountain of a guy, but he wasn't the sharpest tack in the box. And he would leave our dorm room door standing wide open when he went down the hallway to get a shower, whether I was there or not. He'd just leave it open. And I came back to the room one day, and all of my Petra CDs were gone. Someone had stolen my Petra CD. I'm sorry, I'm just getting a little emotional about it right now. Somebody had taken them all. I went to every pawn shop, all three of them, in Troy, Alabama, and I found my CDs, but I didn't have the money to buy them back. So you know what I did? I wrote a letter in the school newspaper. And I was so angry when I started that letter. And by the third or fourth iteration of that letter, God was speaking to my, my sophomore college guy heart saying, you know what? Why don't you just tell the thief that you forgive them and that Jesus loves them? And so I did. 
And then somebody came along, some, somebody lived in Troy, Alabama, saw that article and gave me two tickets to the Petra concert in Mobile. And I got to go see Petra live. And it was just the coolest thing. It was awesome. But, but it was one of those moments where it's like, man, I was wrong. Then I was indignant. And, oh, man. But, but how the Lord shaped my response, how I yielded in that moment, determined the outcome. And I, I still don't have those Petra CDs. But I have Pandora, and it's just as good. So the heart of this is really um, stuff is so much less important than human life, right? This is so much more important. Yes, it's true. People should not steal. People should not extort or rob or cheat, but they do. Sinners going to sin, right? But when it comes right down to it, your life and the lives of your family and your, your close friends are far more valuable and important than protecting and keeping stuff. And Jesus says we're going to reign and rule with him in the kingdom. So letting go of some stuff, even if it was stolen from you, is a small thing in the light of eternity. It makes me think of the hymns I grew up singing, and especially, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's a, there's a line that says, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Wow, that puts a perspective on what I thought was a, was a major loss. It's like, no, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Because what awaits us in the life to come, not the half has been told. So we keep going with Jesus' words in verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the companion passage to this is found in Luke 6. So let me just read this really quickly before we comment. Um, Luke 6, 27 to 36, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do unto you, do so unto them. Again, you've heard it said by them of old, Jesus is raising the bar. He's continuing to take long-held Jewish axioms and turn them on their heads. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's pretty basic. Makes sense in the flesh. Why wouldn't you hate your enemy? Why wouldn't you hate those who clearly hate you? And the answer is simply that Jesus is calling us to be like him, not like the people around us. Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus hung on the cross in agony for Pontius Pilate. Jesus hung on the cross for Caiaphas and for you and for me. Jesus died for his enemies. We're called to be like Jesus. I say to you, love your enemies and do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute or abuse you. So the summation of this paragraph really centers around the transient nature of our lives here on this planet in contrast to eternity. This is a transient, this, this is a quickly fading life, and we're going to be with Jesus forever. When we stop and remember what awaits us in the presence of Jesus, everything that we're enduring now takes on a different hue. Suddenly we find that our sufferings, and are, they're, they're transient when compared with eternity, when compared to being with Jesus forever. And these sufferings that we're enduring are actually storing up for us an eternal weight of glory, Scripture says. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, so we don't lose heart. Now, he's, he's being persecuted, right? He's in, he's in jail. And he says, we're not going to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, he's chained to a Roman Praetorian guard. Okay? Don't lose sight of that. He's chained to a guard. Paul says, 
for this light and momentary affliction. Man, Paul is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So so we roll right back into Matthew's text again, Matthew 5.32. Jesus says, so so if, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even the sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But so love your enemies, Jesus says, and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus is saying, hey, look, loving people who love you is not hard. It's not hard to love people who love you. It's hard to love people who don't love you. Like so many in the world today, there's no benefit to loving the people who are just like us, who already love us. Even the worst, most heinous people love those who love them. Even sinners lend to those who pay them back. But who goes around lending to people who never pay back? Not the bank, that's for sure. If my neighbor asked to borrow my riding mower and never brought it back, I'd be, at his, I'd be knocking on the door demanding my mower back. Jesus is taking that ethic, you know? The point of this section is that love is costly. To love people costs us something. To love like Jesus is going to cost us something. Loving people who think and live like us is easy. <laughs> Loving people who are still in the flesh, who are still in their sins, who need the gospel of grace, that's hard and messy and, and often costly to us. But here Jesus promises that if we do that, if we push through our own flesh, if we operate in the Spirit in obedience, there's a reward for us when we stand before Him. And it's predicated on putting down our expectations of what should happen. So we continue Matthew 6, 1 to 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Key phrase, to be seen. Wanting others to know about it. Wanting others to see it. Wanting others to praise us for it. A motive that wants to receive praise from people, or at the very least, to know that people saw my righteousness being demonstrated clearly with a hope towards them thinking highly of me. Right? Newsflash. Jesus hates that. He hates that. And if you think that's putting it too strongly... Look at the verses that follow. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Can you imagine going around like, hey guys, let's go feed the homeless. Bro, did you bring your trumpet? Food for the homeless. Wow, what an arrogant. Don't... There are words that pastors can't say. Um, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, those people have received their reward. They got what they wanted. They're being praised. Oh, thank you, benevolent bread bringer. They're getting, they're getting their reward. And then he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the motive of the hypocrites, Jesus says, is to be seen by others. The motive Jesus wants for his born-again brothers and sisters is that we would do good for its own sake. And so honor the father. And this is why all the language of not being seen, right? And for the, for the sake of clarification, this is not a prohibition on being seen. It's not a prohibition on doing something good that other people witness. That's, that's not what's happening here. It's a prohibition of embracing the motive that wants to be seen and wants to be praised by others for doing good. 
Jesus says that the person with the wrong motive to receive praise from people now has received what he or she wanted, and that's as far as it goes. But when we operate in grace and generosity, and we don't care if we're seen by people or not, and that generates rewards for us in heaven. Again, always delayed gratification. You see this in the text? Always delayed gratification being tied into the motives of our hearts by Jesus. Do, we, do you want it now? You can have it now. It's going to be... It's not going to be what you wanted later. Or you can wait and have the, the big, you have it all, right? You get to choose. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, prayer doesn't have to be always be alone or in secret. We pray together as a church body. We pray together uh, at 9 a.m. There's a group that shows up every morning in the hallway out here. We pray for the service. We pray for one another. We're in the process of forming a prayer team to be available before and after services to pray with people. This isn't about the form that prayer takes. It's about the why behind it. Why are we praying with people? And so, so this is more of the same. This is Jesus dealing with our motives. Honestly, most of us aren't even that aware of our motives most of the time. So this is an important text for us, really, because Jesus is saying that he, needs, he, he sees and he knows the motives of our hearts. And what he wants for us is to develop the discernment to know our own motives so we can continue to work on purifying our motives with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then to top it off, our humble prayers, unseen by people, receive a reward from the Father. How cool is that? That's amazing to me. Verse 7, we're coming to the end here. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Did you know that was never meant to be a rote prayer, blindly repeated? It was never meant to be that for us. It was, it was meant to be a model prayer to give you just kind of an outline of how we ought to pray. It starts with the character of God the Father, specifically His holiness, and we come to God on the basis of his character, who he is, and he's holy. His name is holy. That means it's not something we should use carelessly. And our Father's in heaven, which means he doesn't see things from our perspective. He sees from above, and he sees all of it. And then we're told to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth, even as it is in heaven. That means we ought to petition the Lord for his reign and rule in our, every part of our lives, in our families' lives, in our neighbors, in our town. That's how we ought to pray. God's will is done in heaven immediately, without question. So when we pray this prayer, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying we should be obeying God in that moment. No hesitation. Do what he says to do. Then we get to the provision piece from the Lord. He knows we're frail, mortal creatures, and, then, and that we need him just to keep breathing the air that he made. Without him, we couldn't do that. So we ask for our daily bread, what we need for today, not what we need tomorrow, not what we need for next week or the year ahead. And that's going to be challenging for some of you. You prepared 10, 10 years worth of food and, 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 and dug that bunker. <laughs> I know I'm right there with you. I'm like, how much ammunition can I stuff in that corner? Right? I'm, I'm with you. Right? But this is the reality. It's to give us this day what we need today. Jesus deals with forgiveness here also as we ask for his forgiveness, the debt of sin, something we can never pay back. An application for us is to be quick to forgive others in any situation. And, on, and this is a, we could just spend weeks on just this prayer, you understand. The flip side is, and I'll just say this, true forgiveness does not always put things back the way that they were before. We talk about forgive us our trespasses. It doesn't always mean a return to what was. Sometimes... That's not possible. 
there are reasonable boundaries depending on situations. And then finally, Jesus deals with temptation. Um, and we have a great passage in James 1, 12 to 15 that delineates this. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he's going to receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. So don't let anybody say when you're tempted, don't, don't, don't say this. You know what? I think God's tempting me. Don't, don't say that. Because God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God doesn't tempt us. Temptation comes from within and is related to our desires. And Satan also tempts us. So we need to be in the Word daily, and we need to be in fellowship with the saints. I don't want to just see you on Sunday. I want to see you during the week. I want you to show up at my house. I'm going to show up at some of your houses this week, randomly. I'm coming over. I'm bringing a pizza. It's going to be awesome. I'm buying. Yes, Nick, I'm buying. <laughs> Verse 14. I just got sucked right into that one. Dang it. Um, <laughs> for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not telling us that our forgiveness is predicated on something we do, but Jesus is pointing to the inverse. Our failure to forgive others keeps the Father from pouring out grace and forgiveness on us because we're the stubborn-hearted one. God didn't send Jesus to the cross so that we could stand on the mountaintop with our hands on our hips and proclaim condemnation on all the people that we just don't like who've done wrong to us. You know what I'm talking about? I'm just going to stay just like this until you, Abigail, thank you so much. I love you. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's our attitude. They have done me wrong. I'm not going to do anything for them ever again until they come to me with a card and a gift worth at least $30 or more. And right? Well, we just have, it's, it's crazy. And so Jesus is saying, look, you've been forgiven. You ought to forgive. If you receive forgiveness, you need to let forgiveness pass through you into the lives of other people who've done wrong to you. And so he pours out mercy and grace and forgiveness on us so that we might become conduits of that in the lives of other people. And then, and then we're almost done here. Um, verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces so that their fasting would be seen by others. People walking by and they're like, right? It's like, you having stomach problems, bro? What's the matter with that? And, and so it's like, they want to be seen, Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting wouldn't be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus just keeps driving the stake in the ground. None of our Christianity lived out should be driven by a desire to be seen and praised by our fellow man. That's not the motive Jesus wants for us. You and I can either receive our reward here in the form of praise from sinful humans made in God's image, just like us, or we could receive praise from God Almighty himself later when we stand before him in glory and we hear him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you choose immediate gratification or delayed gratification? I don't know about you. I'll take mine to go. Thank you very much. So what do we do with this? How do, how, do we, how do we take this home with us? One thing I think is really important in this text, and we, didn't, we haven't unpacked it directly. It's been there the whole time. Last week and this week, and even next week as we continue, it's there, it's present. And it's the, it's the truth that small groups are vital. Small groups are vital. Jesus is teaching his small group in this text. Yes, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, there are probably hundreds of people gathered to hear what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is not there for them. He's teaching his disciples. This was for them. The crowd just came along for the ride. Okay? This is about small groups. 
Jesus is teaching his small group here in this text. Again, Jesus is raising the bar for his newly appointed apostles, and the crowds gathered, they're bearing witness to this. Most people read this text, and they only see the crowd. And I think that's a huge mistake. I believe we're meant to see this small group of disciples as we tune out the large crowd. There's going to be larger crowds of disciples coming down the pipeline later. There's going to be a group of 70 disciples, and then there's a group of 120 later than that. But right now, Jesus is focused on the 12. And that's a small enough group that they could just sit down together, maybe over a meal, have a good discussion about what Jesus was saying. Jesus does not want us to simply know truth. Because knowledge for its own sake, Scripture says it puffs us up. It makes us proud. So this is important for us. Jesus wants us to do truth, to live truth, to embody truth. And that means we need to wrestle with the application of what we read in the Word. If all you do is come to church every Sunday and you hear the truth and you let it get in you, but you don't ever process that with other people or find an outlet for living it out, You're just receiving and receiving and receiving and receiving. And it's puffing up. It's not building up. The last thing I want for this church body or for anyone watching uh, our, our sermon online is to walk away from this and say, well, man, that was a good sermon. And then go on like nothing happened. That would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy. The reason I stopped our first Samuel series last year and shifted gears to the harmony of the Gospels is because I believed and still very much believe that as a local church, we need to dig in and embrace the study of the Gospel accounts in order to become the church that Jesus wants us to be. I never, never want to become a church where people just come in on Sunday morning, consume content, and then leave filled and do nothing with what they've received. That would be a tragedy from my perspective. So what we've done is we've designed life groups to be places where people can meet and fellowship and and enjoy one another and share a meal and then also dig into how to apply the truths that they've heard on Sunday morning. So we're just getting ready to relaunch life groups here uh, coming up at the end of September. I was going through some notes I'd taken recently from some missiologists Uh, there's actually a group of people who study missions and how to reach people more effectively. And and keep in mind, this little factoid is about three or four years old at this point. But um, what I read this week was there is only one county in the United States today, this this is probably four years ago, that has a greater church population than it did 10 years ago. One county. Three or four years ago, probably zero today. The church is declining. It's not growing. So when I I dig into these and other statistics, what I see is that the bigger, bigger is not better, smaller is. What I see in the Sermon on the Mount is the bigger is not better, smaller is. We need small groups midweek to process what we're taking in on Sundays. You know, I I take the time and the effort to write discussion questions for those groups because I believe that hearing a sermon without the chance to talk about it and to wrestle with the application is just puffing up the church. And Paul tells the Corinthian church that knowledge for its own sake puffs up, but love, which necessarily includes the application of knowledge, that's the thing that builds people up. And so life groups are starting the week of September 18th. You'll see information on the tables in the entryway. You'll also see it on the Church Center app. So I'm just encouraging you as an application point this morning, make life groups a priority this year. We, you need to, if you really want to grow in Christ's likeness and you want to grow in understanding of the Word, you need to be in a life group. And then here's the last thing I'll say, and I'll get out of the way and we can wrap this up. Um, Jesus, this is about Jesus' revolutionary ethic. It's going to blow our minds, even next week. Like, I'm, I'm, I've been through the Sermon on the Mount several times in my uh, 25 years of ministry, but even just this pass through as I'm teaching here on Sundays, it's, 
It's just really stretching me. It's really stretching me. We need to be in the word. Jesus is not calling us to keep the law. He's calling the born-again Christians to rise above the law and the power of the Spirit. The scribes and the Pharisees, we got to understand, I want you to take this home with you, they were not insincere. They were not insincere. They, they were genuinely trying to adhere to the keeping of the law of Moses. They were misguided. They were zealous, but they were sincere. Anyone who tries to reconcile himself to God by his works, by his rules, by his legalism, that's pharisaical. Is there any other way to heaven other than by Jesus Christ? I mean, if there is, Jesus' own prayers were not answered because in Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded with the Father three times for an alternative. If there's any other way, Lord. He didn't receive one. Therefore, there's only one way. There's only one way to get to heaven. It's through Jesus. The salvation of the lost and the maturation, the growing up and maturation of the saints is worth all the pain and all the effort and all the exhaustion of ministry. Listen, if God calls you to be an evangelist, if he calls you to be a church planter, if he calls you to be a pastor, do not stoop to be a king. We have a little while longer until we all stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I just want to say to you this morning, heaven is eternal, but so is the lake of fire. And these eternal realities necessarily mean that our current afflictions are both light and momentary by comparison. The same is true of our pleasures and our victories. They are light and momentary by comparison. All of them are light and momentary. And this is why we are called to live life with eternity in view. The choices we make, especially regarding the Lord and his will, determine so much more than our immediate comfort and our prosperity. These choices count for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we need you in this hour to keep us on track, to keep us focused, to direct our gaze heavenward, that we would not become distracted with the things of this world. Lord, teach us what it means to, to read the Sermon on the Mount, to, to understand what it is you've called us to, and to embrace the kingdom ethic. We know that we're not going to be able to live it fully until we're glorified in your presence. But Lord, we want to practice now because practice makes perfect. So Lord, would you move in us, equip us, love us, and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus comes on the scene. He proceeds to raise the moral standards set forth in the Old Testament. These new ethics are impossible for us to keep. That's why we have to plead for the Holy Spirit who lives in us to bring us into conformity with Jesus' standards. And that only happens when a soul repents of sin, puts their faith in him. So press into Jesus in these trying times and trust that at the proper time, he will come for his bride. Amen? Until then, let's preach the good news of salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.